Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey, that's me. Hello, welcome in. I am Rich Kimball, that's Carrie Haskell, and this is Downtown, the podcast, episode number 201. Brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. From those aforementioned Zone Radio studios in Bangor, Maine, we welcome you in. Coming up this week on the program, uh, a spring mentality here as we roll into spring officially. Later on, we'll talk a little baseball, fantasy baseball, with insider Al Melchior of The Athletic. And up first, well, we talk about greening things up a little bit and uh, protecting our soil with the author of a brand new book called Grow Now. Here's our conversation with Emily Murphy on Downtown. Emily, thank you for being with us today. Hi, Rich. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's such a wonderful book. Uh, It's informative, and it's a beautiful book. The pictures are just outstanding as well. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I I worked really hard to create a visual story along with the narrative of the how-to and the why-to that's described in the book. Well, and the message is, among other things, that uh, it's not just great, and it is, to be able to, to grow your own food, but it can also have an incredibly positive impact on our environment. That, that's exactly right. And so Grow Now is a book that looks at um, regenerative organics, how we can regrow our landscapes and our food systems starting at home with a very simple set of principles uh, for growing. Uh, and those regenerative principles are, are, are they're, they're, they're principles that um, are so old they seem new and they're, and they're truly simple. Um, it's applying compost to soil, feeding the soil with, uh, with organic matter, essentially, and keeping living roots in the ground, growing perennials, um, taking a no-dig approach or disturbing the soil as little as possible to, uh, to really preserve and protect that soil ecosystem, uh, planting biodiversity for biodiversity and doing no harm, protecting wild places, and, and really looking at our landscapes and the places closest to home as these uh, wonderful, empowering, um, climate, p- potentially climate resilient landscapes that have the ability to buoy us up personally, to really um, it, uh, offer each of us um, uh, a lifeline to good health and, and a you know, place to be with our families. I'm sure many of us remember the start of the pandemic. Uh, boy, we were all turning to our gardens and the places closest to home mm. uh, pretty, pretty, pretty closely at the start of 2020. And uh, I think that revived this interest in, in, in looking at our landscapes a little bit differently, which I was so grateful for. And I really try to encapsulate that. I wrote the book during 2020, and I feel like the challenges of, of that year uh, made the book better, at least I hope, because I really wanted to provide readers again using this word lifeline or or a sense of hope through action and i did my best to answer this larger question of how we can save our health communities and planet one garden at a time i was struck by your personal story that you share in the introduction of the book about uh, about your grandmother and uh, searching for mushrooms and uh, being out on the land with the trees that were planted uh, by your great-grandfather, and uh, it made me think about my family. I've got an eight-year-old son at home, and how important it is to pass this along to our kids for them to understand the role we can play 
in nurturing and preserving the environment, but also in uh, in getting them to understand where food comes from. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and they're and they're so interconnected, aren't they? And I think I think in our minds we sometimes try to separate where our food comes from from nature, but but really they can't be separated. And uh, the healthier our environment, the healthier we are, the healthier the environment to which our food is grown, uh, the healthier the food. And what a wonderful thing to learn from a young age. I feel like I was very fortunate to have those opportunities, as you mentioned, or uh, those stories of, of my own childhood uh, uh, in in the beginning of the book. But um, what a wonderful thing. And, and I'm sure your son appreciates those opportunities too. And if he doesn't articulate them now, I'm sure that <laughs> I'm sure that as he as he grows older, he'll he'll look back and realize, wow, I'm pretty lucky to spend time outside, whatever it is you enjoy doing. And and I'm sure that gives him this lexicon or this language for for really understanding his place in the world, giving him courage and confidence to try things, experiment, uh, uh, and 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 maybe experience some failures, but uh, maybe then he'll learn like ah, I can overcome these things. Or you know, if I try this, maybe if I just do it a different way, or whatever it might be. If you're looking at growing some of your own food in the garden, give yourself courage to fail and try again. And, and I think you learn that uh, sort of through osmosis when you're young and take it with you, whether you realize it or not. Well, and you talk about the fact that all of us as kids love playing in the dirt. Sometimes we get away from that, but it's not a bad thing to go back to that. To nurture your nature, uh, as you put it, and get a little dirt on your hands. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, there's something in the book I call that I outline. I, I didn't, I didn't coin it, but it's it's something that's out there that we don't talk about much, uh, and it's it's the idea of your nature quotient. Mm. So we're all familiar with. Our IQ, our ability to reason, uh, emotional quotient is another measure of of ability or understanding that 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 many recognize. Um, your emotional quotient is your is your um, ability to work with others, collaborate, communicate, understand others, and your nature quotient is really your your understanding of the natural world. and And it can begin from a young age. It can begin at any age, and it doesn't mean you have to know every plant, animal, species uh, by a scientific name. But rather, you take the time to pay attention and be curious. And what a gift! Uh, and 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 having cultivating your nature quotient. We never can really complete com- cultivating our nature quotient. Uh, is also a tool for again seeing our food system, seeing how we grow food, growing better gardens, uh, and approaching the landscape, and also some really big, um, difficult world problems. Uh, and when we begin to solve some of those problems closer to home, we we begin to understand maybe a little bit of what's necessary to solve some of these global issues like the climate crisis and loss of biodiversity. And and, uh, and it can all begin at home. I like to say that what is local is global. And, and what I do in my garden and my neighbor's garden collectively, they add up to making a difference. Well, and you outlined 15 easy ways to increase your nature quotient, and, and they're all they're all relatively simple things that uh, people of any age could do with a little bit of guidance. Mm, absolutely. And and I'm sure everyone can maybe begin, you know, any listeners right now might be thinking, oh, what could I do to increase my nature quotient? And they can be, they can be um, things as simple as keeping a bird book and binoculars by your, your kitchen window or your back door or paying attention to the path of the sun or is the moon in the sky during the day? And if so, at what angle or what is the phase of the moon or, <clears throat> or who's visiting my garden or 
what birds are passing through, when are they migrating, um, who is migrating and when, I should say, um, and, and what insects might be about. Do you see, when do you see uh, fireflies, for instance, and, and when do they come out? Um, it could be any number of things, and you don't have to record those, those uh, findings, but you could and collect, collect them in a journal or, or just, just catalog them. And what I find, too, is that these are these small moments of joy that when we take time to pay attention, you know, every day can kind of feel like Groundhog Day a little bit, at least in my life, <laughs> since 2020 writing this book. And I have been, I've been so hard at work with this project. I've wanted so much for this book to do great things and, and truly uh, give people the sense of what's possible. I put everything I could into it, and now it's just released. And, and, uh, and while I'm so joyful and thankful for the opportunity, I also do feel like sometimes every day is Groundhog Day a little bit. Like, okay, keep going, keep going. And, and for me, it is these small things such as those outlined in the book for increasing your nature quotient that really provide those bright moments of, of aha moments or joy or just the simple things. I feel like it's the pennies in life that add up that, that, that really make a difference. And it's kind of what this is. Emily Murphy with us here on downtown. Her new book is called Grow Now. A- Emily, can you talk about the importance of, of healthy soil? Yeah, good question. That healthy soil is at the core of this book, and and I know it's a term that maybe um, any of your listeners who are who are avid gardeners they've heard before. You know, we're not really feeding our plants; we're feeding the soil. What does that mean? Uh, and there's there's so many different ways to look at uh, soil, soil ecology. And I did my best best to break down uh, the importance of soil health and how we can how we can embolden soil health and, and how that betters our lives and our gardens and everything we grow and, and also our communities and the greater environment. And soil health begins with seeding the soil, as I mentioned, applying compost to the soil or other mulches, disturbing it as little as possible, uh, keeping living roots in the ground. Uh, and and all, of these, uh, all of these practices really go back to something as simple as the carbon cycle. We are, we're, when we feed the soil organic matter, we're feeding the soil life. And carbon kind of has a bad rap because of all the carbon in the atmosphere. Uh, but it wasn't always, you know, in the same, in the abundance that it is now in the atmosphere. Much of that carbon came from other sources, such as soil. And, and soil really is the building block of life. When scientists look for signs of life out in the atmosphere, for instance, they're looking for signs of carbon uh, paired with water. Uh, because every living thing uh, is based on uh, carbon. That's the, the root of every living thing. And so when we think of carbon as being life and feeding our soil carbon, we're really feeding our soil life and we're feeding those soil microbes and the soil ecology, all the organisms live in the soil uh, with this life. And when we do that, we give them the opportunity to uh, to thrive uh, and uh, they then assist our plants and they then also then interact with the uh, biodiversity above soil. But what we're really doing is just trying to support biodiversity. And there's this amazing push and pull, There's or sometimes what I like to call a feed-forward or feedback loop that happens between the biodiversity of soil and the biodiversity above ground. It's, it's, really, it's really quite amazing how they support one another. So when we look at biodiversity above ground wanting support, 
butterflies and bees and all the wonderful wildlife that visits our yard, uh, that also begins with soil health because uh, the the biodiversity above ground can only be as healthy um, as the the soil that plants are grown in. And it it goes on and on. There's something else I talk about in the book about uh, the biodiversity hypothesis, uh, which that's a whole other conversation, but it really links our personal health as well to the health of soil and the health of plants and the health of the environment. And and it shows us how, um, uh, you know, in, in, in scientific terms, why this is so. And uh, so, again, the soil of the health is also important to our own personal health. And one of the benefits of the no-dig approach, as you point out, is that it, it ensures that carbon stored in the soil stays underground. What are the, some of the other benefits of no-dig? Yeah, yeah. So that's a good point. I forgot that whole part about storing carbon underground. Uh, so that is one of the benefits. You're exactly right. So when we feed the soil carbon, we're shuttling carbon from above ground, underground, and it's the mycorrhizal fungi that, that um, really are helping assist in this process, which is why we want to encourage their biodiversity. Um, 90 to 95% of plants form these mycorrhizal relationships. And, um, and what happens is uh, carbon goes through the plant as a form of sugar because of the photosynthetic process. That is part of the carbon cycle. And it comes out of the roots, feeds those soil organisms. We put compost on the soil. Uh, where again, we're moving carbon from above ground, underground, and uh, these fungi then uh, produce a substance, has a fancy name, it's called glomalin, kind of a sticky substance, and this is what helps form humus in the soil, and this is where stable carbon can be stored. And when we take a no-dig approach to disturb the soil as little as possible, um, one, we're, we're fostering the soil ecosystem, but we're also ensuring that those stable carbon stores stay underground. And it can stay underground for hundreds of years, which is really remarkable. And, um, and when you think about it, this is how nature grows itself, right? Leaves fall from trees and um, litter the ground and animals come and do their work and other bits and twigs of things are also on the ground and, and the only thing that's digging are the squirrels or the moles, and they're improving soil tilth, but uh, only through their activities. And and it, and so with regenerative growing, this no-dig uh, growing, we're doing our best to mimic nature. I love the idea, too, of rethinking lawns, and, and you write about that, and I've never been a big lawn guy myself, and, and you say that's that could be an area that could really be a great spot uh, to rethink how you use that land and how you uh, make it more uh, healthy for the environment and for the entire ecosystem, uh, the birds, the bees, the butterflies, and other critters. Absolutely, absolutely. So when you take a bird's eye view of any neighborhood, whether it's yours or, or, um, or maybe... Uh, the a suburban area um, near your town center, uh, you have to ask yourself, you know, where, if you were a chickadee or another bird, where would you land? Where would you make your home? And if it's all lawn, it doesn't give wildlife a, a lot of opportunity to set up shop and create habitat because there's no habitat to be found. And, and, and sometimes when you take the reverse view and you look at your, your yard or, your front yard or your backyard or your side yard that might be lawn and you're wondering where to put a garden, it might be that the best place is um, to gobble up some of that lawn uh, by covering it over 
with, um, again, organic matter, taking this no-dig approach, um, and covering it over with organic matter, layering it up rather than digging down and putting a garden right on top of it. And there are many ways to do this. And, and I know not everyone has a lawn or has a yard. Some people only have room for containers. But it's a really exciting thing to think about how lawns can be transformed into either food gardens, uh, raised bed food gardens, or a combination of food gardens and, um, and plants for pollinators, um, native hedgerows. And some of the images I share in the book are just this. And while I'm based in Northern California, uh, near the coast, um, I'm originally from a place where, very close to where the Ewok scenes were filmed in Star Wars. Um, I have spent a lot of time in New England, in Maine and New Hampshire and Vermont and uh, Massachusetts. And some of the gardens, many of the gardens photographed and grown out are from New England. And uh, one of them is a perennial food forest in Massachusetts, and there's Flower Farm in Vermont, and um, another garden in Massachusetts, not in Maine in particular, but uh, they they show how these yards and landscapes can be transformed into what we're just talking about, where you can transform your lawn into really incredible ecosystem for for the that in better that betters the environment and, and for yourself as well. So Emily, for anybody who would like to begin making some positive changes, what's a relatively simple way to start? A really simple way to start is to compost, honestly, or to apply compost to soil. So there's two benefits here. Uh, uh, to to make your own compost or to at least ensure that your yard waste your yard trimmings, your leaves, and your kitchen scraps get composted, whether you're composting them or you're taking them to a community compost center. Uh, that is incredibly important. Uh, there are millions of tons of yard trimmings and uh, kitchen scraps that go to landfills every year. And uh, when they go to the landfill, they produce methane, which is a greenhouse gas 28 times more potent than, than carbon dioxide, uh, which is staggering. So just think, if you just did that one thing, uh, how much that would be helping. And then the other, the other thing that's helpful is to, is to take any compost you make or, or if you have a compost facility nearby, invest in putting compost back on your property. One of the, um, one of the areas of research I did before starting Grow Now to ask, what really is, the, what is our ability to sequester carbon underground? Is this real? Is this possible? And how does it work if so? And I reached out to uh, the team at UC Davis who were doing a study on, on just this, on carbon sequestration and, and what are the factors involved for successful carbon sequestration through growing. And uh, they, they looked at cover crops. Um, they, they, of course, were using no-dig, no-till. And what they found, though, was it wasn't until they introduced compost and in their instance, it was a half an inch to an inch of compost over the soil surface uh, that really began shuttling carbon from the atmosphere underground. I thought it was so interesting. And they, I talked to two of the writers of the paper after they had finished. It was a 20-year study, and they were looking at the ability to store carbon at depth. And they both said independently, because I talked to them separately, they both said independently, if any, if if homeowners were to do one thing, it would be spread compost over their entire yard, including their lawn, because um, it's this process that allows all of us to begin shuttling carbon from the atmosphere. I thought that was just so fascinating. It Emily, can be that simple. 
Emily Murphy's new book is Grow Now, How We Can Save Our Health, Communities, and Planet, One Garden at a Time. Enjoyed the book so much and enjoyed talking with you about it. Emily, thank you for being with us this afternoon. Uh, Thanks so much, Rich. I really appreciate your time. Emily Murphy discussing her book, Grow Now, How We Can Save Our Health, Communities, and Planet, One Garden at a Time. We'll take a break for a quick word from Cross Insurance and come back and talk baseball with Al Melchior of The Athletic right after this. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit crossinsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. downtown the podcast time to talk some fantasy baseball that is as we welcome in our friend al melchior from the athletic to get you ready for your coming fantasy baseball season hello there rich how are you doing i'm doing well thanks it's just it's good to be thinking about and talking about real baseball i wasn't sure if that would happen a couple of weeks ago i will be very honest like a week ago i would have absolutely predicted that we would not be having this conversation right now. So I'm very, very pleasantly surprised and happy that we are having this and, and able to talk about real baseball and, and fancy baseball. Well, let's start with the, some of the recent moves here. The, the big news today, Freddie Freeman uh, going to the Los Angeles Dodgers. Uh, does that shift in ballparks affect him much one way or the other? I don't think so. Mostly just because he's Freddie Freeman. And I, <laughs> It's actually, actually, Rich, just finished literally like a minute before coming on here, finished writing a column about players on bad teams who have good fancy value regardless of that. And Freddie Freeman used to be that player uh, once upon a time. It's sort of hard to remember Atlanta not being a good team, but a, a few years ago they, they weren't a good team. And he still produced a lot of runs and hit for a great average and hit for good power. And he's even a better player now. So, uh Obviously, it's a great landing spot for him. Uh, I, I suppose if there's there's any way to give him an up arrow because of that lineup he's in, he he deserves it. But he, you know, he he and Vlad Guerrero Jr. were the you know top two. They have been the top two first baseman in fantasy drafts up to this point. There's an absolute consensus on that. I don't think that changes. Big signing yesterday by the Cubs, getting a, the talented outfielder from the Japanese league, say Suzuki. How how do we try and get those stats he put up in Japan to translate to Wrigley Field? Yeah, that's always a, a, a tricky thing. Um, you know, a, a, I was going to say a trick, not really a trick, but a tool that that I use make make liberal use of is uh, on the site Fangraphs. Uh, there's a, a range of different projections that are there, and uh, it, it gives you a good idea. I mean, these these projections are very you know well thought out and well founded. What's kind of interesting with Suzuki's projections is that there's, as you would expect, uh, with a player just about to make his debut in, in Major League Baseball, there's not as much consensus as you would normally see. So we've got one projection system that has him for 22 homers, uh, other projections that have him just for 10. So it, that just speaks to the difficulty of trying to understand how those stats are going to translate into Major League Baseball. So 
you, you do your best. I tend to be cautious with this. Um, I'd rather go with more known quantities than take the risk of uh, drafting for, for the upside of those projections. And that's not, by the way, not just for players coming from, from overseas, but just in general, you know, players with injury risk or uh, for whatever reason, players that represent a lot of variance coming into a season. Uh, I, I would rather get those players if they fall in the draft than reach and, and assume the best for them. I want to ask you about a specific position here, and that's the catcher spot. First of all, uh, do you do you subscribe to the theory of position scarcity that if you can if you can get some numbers at a position like catcher where there's not a great deal of talent, is it worth overspending drafting a little early at that spot? I'm generally a really big subscriber to that theory, Rich. Uh, in, I would say, recent years, and really, I'm not even like the last two, three years, but probably, I don't know, maybe even the last like eight years or so, I've made an exception to catcher because there's such a prevalent attitude that even though every single year there's scarcity of catcher, that people wait on catchers. Uh, I'd gotten burned for a time being too rigid with position scarcity, not reading the room, and going for catchers too early. And so this year has been interesting because Sal Perez last year lapped the field. Mm. He had almost double the fantasy value of the second best catcher, who was Will, Will Smith last year, at least in terms of roto roto format. So people see that that you know extreme scarcity uh, that he was a a um, you know a tier of one player who was so <laughs> far ahead of everybody else that people are scrambling to get him. And in my most recent draft, I took Salvador Perez in the third round. So take it to an extreme. I will will pursue that that strategy with catchers, particularly with this one catcher. But I, I am a little bit more loose with it uh, at that position because I think there is, again, you have to understand the people you're drafting with. And usually people I draft with uh, aren't, they, they just distrust catchers. And you know, maybe, maybe for good reason, given the, the year-to-year variability that's existed at that position for most players. Now, I saw you wrote on The Athletic that there's a pretty significant drop-off uh, somewhere somewhere right after uh, Mitch Garver. But let me ask you about a couple of guys. Uh, what does mm-hmm. the move to Minnesota do for Gary Sanchez? Uh, maybe, yeah, I'm not sure that it really does much of anything. I mean, maybe Sanchez is a, a change of scenery player. That, that'll remain to be seen. Park factor wise, it's, it's probably not a not a positive for Sanchez. Uh, I think lineup around him is is a little bit of a downgrade, but I don't think it's it really going to move the needle on him too much. And I, I think the thing was this is actually a great segue, Rich, from what I was just talking about because Sanchez has had a lot of variability mm. uh, within his career. So I still hold out hope that we're going to see him bounce back to that level he had a few years ago, but. I'm not. I'm not banking on it. So that's that's what makes drafting a catcher tough because he's not alone with that kind of profile. But I, yeah, I don't think that the move to Minnesota is necessarily going to be a big a big change. Maybe a little bit more playing time. I'm not sure what the strategy there is of thinking about Ryan Jeffers and working him into the mix, but uh, I think Sanchez will get get a lot of playing time if he stays healthy. So I'm I'm loaded with catchers in my keeper league i don't know why but i've got four of them (laughs) none of them are very good but a couple of them are intriguing to me and one is a guy who who put up some good power numbers last year i don't know that he can sustain much of an average what are your thoughts on uh, the tigers eric haas yeah he's interesting it's and this is an interesting uh pair of catchers to, to put next to each other in the discussion 
because the way I've approached it is that when we're getting around to the point where it looks like Sanchez is going to go and looking at his his ADP, and right now I'm looking at his ADP for the month of March in, in NFBC drafts, it's 240. So Sanchez is going as a late rounder. So we're at that stage, and I'm looking for, say, my number two catcher, and I'm targeting Sanchez and that upside that he has. I'm thinking, okay, if Sanchez doesn't go, Eric Haas might not be that much worse than Gary Sanchez, but he's he's going quite a bit later. So that's that's how I'm doing Eric Haas. Uh, we, we had one out-of-nowhere breakout season last year from him. I don't think very many people are expecting him to repeat that, but he has shown the ability to, to hit for power and have some value. So at that point in the draft, that's, that's worth something. And if Sanchez is gone, then, then Haas is right there uh, up near the top of my, my draft queue. We're talking with Al Melchior here on Downtown. Who are some pitchers to keep an eye on, Al, that might be ready to take their game to the next level this season? Uh, well, there is one, and this is kind of going a, a little bit deep, but somebody that I think I've drafted in literally every draft so far is Brady Singer. And he's somebody that was I actually just wrote about in that column that I was, was mentioning a little bit earlier about players who could do very well despite not necessarily having a great team around them. But I, you know, when you look at peripheral stats. You're not just looking at the surface stats, like what a pitcher's ERA was last season or their whip or what their, their one loss record was. And you look at how many swings and misses do they get? How many, uh, at what rate do they freeze batters on a called strike? Um, how good are they at preventing hard contact? Uh, particularly those latter two, those are, are metrics that Brady Singer has scored really well on in both of his two seasons. So he's a guy that I'll probably just be getting over and over again in uh, in the later rounds. And I guess I might as well just preview this whole column because another <laughs> picture I wrote about was Cal Quantrill, and he had a phenomenal second half last yes, year. Yes, he that. did, yeah. I And I have to admit, Rich, at the time, I did not buy into it. He, he didn't strand very many runners. You look at those kinds of things that you think might indicate some really good luck, and it looked completely fluky. But Quantrill was striking out more batters. He was getting more swings and misses. And he was, again, this is a, a really kind of strange metric to look at, but it's one that I look at that I, sometimes helps me to find players that, that other people overlook, which is looking at the launch angle of batted balls that they allowed. Mm. And nobody allowed higher fly balls in the second half last season than Cal Quantrill did. So with the uptick in the strikeouts, he's getting a lot of easy fly ball outs. Uh, you know, he did this over a three-month period. So who knows if he can sustain that going into 2022. But as a pitcher who's barely inside the top 300 in terms of ADP, that's another late-round target for me, just like uh, like Brady Singer. Uh, back to my team. I've got a young guy I, I snagged a late in the draft uh, last year. He came up a little bit at the end of the season for the Twins and uh, looked pretty good. Uh, what are your thoughts on the potential for Joe Ryan? Oh, that's right. They're going to say Bailey Ober because he's another one of my. Oh, I like Bailey Ober too. Yes. <laughs> Joe Ryan. I mean, Joe Ryan definitely comes with um, a, a higher pedigree and a little bit more hype. So, um, that, I think that's something that I sort of factor into this. Is I think you know, Joe Ryan could be very good this year, but the fact that he did make this tremendous debut with the Twins, frankly, I think better than a lot of people thought that he would, um, getting a 30% strikeout rate, which is phenomenal. Uh, but uh, I'm not sure that he'll be able to, to keep that up over a, over a whole season. But so for, you know, for that reason that he, he does come with these expectations and the hype, I have not drafted Joe Ryan yet, and yet I, I would be perfectly perfectly happy to have him. 
I think it's just a question of what the expectations are of the other managers in, in your league. The closer position has become so volatile in recent years. So uh, if anybody's going to draft a closer early or, or spend money on them in an auction, who are the uh, the couple of closers that you think are most likely to keep that job the entire season? Yeah, maybe not that many this year. Uh, so closer's been interesting because you've got the, the big two that everybody feels very confident about, and that's uh, Josh Hader and, and Liam Hendricks. You know, once you do get past uh, the, the you know that top tier, you get past those two: Edwin Diaz, Ryan Presley. Um, get get a little bit further further down. Um, somebody that uh, that I really uh, like a lot is Taylor Rogers, and for some reason, he's been sort of overlooked in drafts. And I don't know yeah. if it's is that because he's a lefty. You think? I don't. I don't think so. I think maybe if you went back a couple of years, I think that's something people would have been concerned about. But when he has been in high leverage and particularly in a closing position as long as he has been, I just I'd be surprised that people would still be worried about. Oh well, he's going to go back to some kind of specialist role, mm. or that you know the Twins really need him in a different role. I think it's just that in, in terms of surface stats, he did have a little bit of an off season last year, but the skills didn't really diminish at all. So it's a bit of a mystery to me why he's not going a little bit higher and why he's not up there, you know, with the, the Edwin Diaz's and, and Ryan Presley's of the world. But I'm I'm more than happy to to wait on Rogers, and I've already wound up with him a couple of times. and wouldn't be surprised to have him on on another team or two. A couple American League teams that have some interesting situations. Uh, who do you think uh, ends up as the Tigers' closer? Do they stick with Soto? I think so. Um, you did. Did a pretty credible job last year, and um, you you look at the alternatives. Chafin is Andrew Chafin's awfully good, but again, there's a case of that because he is a lefty. That uh, and uh, Soto, if he were in the closer's role, uh, that takes a lefty out of the mix. That maybe that that works against Chafin. Michael Fulmer, I think you know it really kind of remains to be seen how he uh, first of all how long he stays healthy and and how well he he performs over the longer haul in a relief role. Joe Jimenez kind of buried in on the depth chart there um, was the closer closer of the future for a long time. Then he was the closer of the present and didn't do as well as people were hoping. Maybe he's, he lurks in that picture, but I, I don't see any reason to, to think that anybody other than Soto starts the year in that role. And in, in Seattle, a second rider racked up some saves last year, but his peripherals weren't great. And uh, Paul Seawald kind of came out of nowhere and was lights out for them. Yeah, I am really rooting for Paul Seawald. Uh, yeah, like you said, fantastic peripherals, just has that that closer profile. I think that this is a situation where it could be split uh, a number of different ways. you got Ken Giles in that mix. You've got mm. Castillo, who once upon a time was part of the mix with the Rays. So I could see the Mariners sharing the, the splitting the situation in enough different ways that it sort of ruins it for everybody. <laughs> but I do think if it's a situation where one reliever can uh, be elevated into uh, that that closer role and, and just run with it. I do think that Seawald's got the best chance to do that. All right, Al, who's one prospect in each league that people should keep on their radar? Mm, all right. Well, uh, I would say somebody that I've been coming back to over and over is Alec Thomas, who's a, an outfielder in the Diamondback system, pretty close to the major leagues, appears to be, based on what he did in the minors last season, appears to be if not ready, very, very close to ready. And that's a situation where 
I think you've got the combination of a, of a prospect who's got got great tools, um, has displayed good performance at the, at the upper levels, and is in an organization where there's there's going to be a, a clear opportunity to um, to to, to be able, just be ready to, to play. Certainly, um, Adley Rutschman. I mean, he's uh, just recently uh, injured, but I still think that he could be a, an impact player this year. Uh, certainly be excited to see Leo Rodriguez in the AL uh, coming up with the Mariners. I'm not sure how soon that that happens, but those are certainly a couple of names to, uh, to talk aside. Al, always great to talk baseball with you. I'm also so excited to see, and I'm not surprised at it, how well uh, the podcast, You, Me, and an Album, is going for you. Well, thank you so much, Rich, and you, you're a part of that. <laughs> you were a guest. Uh, that was a really fun discussion. I think about a lot about uh, Harry Nilsson, and yeah, I've been having a blast with it. So I appreciate you uh, giving giving a little bit of air here. Um, it, it, I just I've been fortunate to really have on so many great guests and talk about so many really interesting albums. Yeah, if you were into music, you really should subscribe to it. Uh, you, me, and an album, and of course, check out all of Al's great work at the Athletic. Uh, Al, thanks so much for being with us. As always, hope your teams have a great season, and we'll catch you again soon. Thank you so much, Richard. Same to you, Al Melchior of the Athletic, talking with us here on Downtown. Or thanks to Al. Thank you to Emily Murphy, author of Grow Now, and to you for joining us this week. We'll see you next time. By the way, next week, well, a lot of fun. Ken Burns will be our guest on the podcast next week, talking about his new documentary on Benjamin Franklin. We'll see you next time here on Downtown.